This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. It's such a mystery, such an impossible task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Turn around, Yvette. Never look at them again. Why? They're not who they're supposed to be. They've given up. Yvette, Carl, never give up. Life's too short. Never give up. It's a lesson passed down from mother to child. Cafe Daughter is a movie inspired by the life of a little girl with a secret. A secret that would drive her passion for science, advocacy, and ultimately lead her back home. Danse, Anine, Boujou. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. This was the line that did it. She goes, well, back then it was illegal for Chinese men to hire white women for their businesses. Today, we step into a 1950s picture of the Canadian prairies, as told by a playwright, a filmmaker, and a director. Her story also felt a lot like my own family's story, like there were really common elements. No, it's really about the family, this strong, loving family and the mother who tells her daughter, you know, don't let anybody know you're Indian because if they if they know, they're going to be horrible to you. Today on Unreserved, Cafe Daughter, a new film by Circle Blue Entertainment. We'll hear what it took to bring the story to life on the big screen and go straight to the source of the film's inspiration, the Honorable Dr. Lillian Eva Dick. At 78 years old, Lillian Eva Dick is a former Canadian senator, a highly respected neuroscientist, and a champion of Indigenous rights. It's been a long journey, one that started with a secret. Born in 1945 to a Chinese father and a Cree mother, Lillian grew up in small-town Saskatchewan. Her father, Quan Lee Yock, ran a café. Her mother, Eva McNabb, was a residential school survivor. Taught to be ashamed of her Cree identity, Eva encouraged her children to keep that part of who they were hidden. Despite this, or maybe because of it, Lillian had to break through a lot of glass ceilings. She became the first Indigenous woman to obtain a PhD in the sciences in Canada, the first Indigenous woman and the first Canadian-born Chinese to be appointed to the Senate. And her life inspired the play, and in October, a feature film called Café Daughter. Lillian, welcome to Unreserved. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, We first want to uh, just play you a little clip from that new film, Café Daughter, um, that features you. Let's have a listen to that. Yvette, would you please come to the front and introduce yourself properly? My name is Yvette Wong. I'm going to be 10. I'm now in grade six. I want to be a doctor when I grow up. (laughs) Silly Yvette meant she wants to be a nurse. Women can be nurses. 
they don't become doctors. And that's a clip from the upcoming movie to be released in October featuring the life of Dr. Lillian Dick. Lillian, what was it like um, hearing that little snippet of the movie? Well, actually, the character Miss Scott is one of my favorites. Miss Scott represents, uh, you know, both sides of the culture that uh, we're discriminating against women and young girls and discriminating against uh, Indians, First Nations mm. people. And so she is, the teacher in the clip is based on real people or real person or a combination? It's a combination. Say? Mm-hmm. Uh, your childhood story, of course, is really prominent in the film. Can you um, give me an idea and give us an idea of what it was like growing up in the 1950s? It's, it's the prairies. You're a child who is half Cree and half Chinese. Well, it was really unusual because typically we were the only so-called Chinese family in the town. And, of course, my dad would, as is the historic trend in the prairies, ran the ch- local Chinese cafe. So as youngsters, my brother and I would help out in the cafe, so we were always working. And we we also faced some, well, for me, some discrimination because people didn't like Chinese. But for my brother in particular, he faced a lot of discrimination because of being Chinese. The boys would really uh, physically attack him. He he got into Mm. a lot of fights and... But because it's the 1950s and racism is kind of accepted, you know, I, I think my dad felt powerless, right? What could he do? He couldn't put a stop to it. He's running a cafe. He relies on the public to come into the cafe so he can't create a scene. So here we are facing racism and we're trying to fit in. We're trying to not create waves and we don't really belong. And we know Mm. we don't belong. But this is our life, so we adapt. So, you know, we were kind of always living on the edges or the margins of of, of the little towns that we lived in. Mm. Can you tell me, as another picture, what your family life was like? What was your, tell me about your family. My dad was about 20 years older than my mom. My dad came to Canada in 1912 just as a young boy. And he went back to China a few times. Uh, They could only go back for two years at a time. He actually got married in China at one point in time and had a family, a wife and family in China. But he was not allowed to bring that family to Canada. So consequently, here he is living alone in Canada. And like many of the Chinese bachelors, they were called, he ended up entering another relationship and he married my mother. Now, my mom was born on the Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan, George Gordon First Nation, just north of Regina. And it just so happened that her sister uh, and herself worked as waitresses for Chinese cafe operators. At that point in time in history, there was a law in the books in Saskatchewan that prohibited Chinese business owners from hiring white women. So they could not hire a white waitress. And, of course, waitresses are essential to cafes. But he could, but they could hire non-white women. And, of course, that would include people like my mother and her sister, her sister Carrie. So mm. my mom started out working in the restaurant. And like her sister Carrie, she ended up marrying the, the man who ran the cafe. Mm. Certainly is a, a lovely love story. What did your parents, uh, you know, tell you about 
about you, like what what you sh- how you should identify. You know, they never really talked about my dad. Never really talked about it, but my mom very strongly, and I don't remember her actually sitting down and saying this, but it was embedded in every mm. cell of my body. Don't tell anybody you're an Indian. Yeah. Don't ever go back to the reserve. And it was kind of like her deathbed message. She died when I was about 10. And that message stuck, of course. And, you know, my dad not having family either, we just kind of, there were just the three of us after she passed away. My brother Winston, my dad, and myself. Yeah. And that's certainly um, a perspective that many, uh, you know, mixed people um, identify with this idea that you sort of hide parts of yourself and um, don't talk about it. How did that, you know, manifest as a child? What did you tell people when they asked about you, who you were? Uh, people really didn't ask, of course, because with the name Quan, that's mm. a Chinese name. And, of course, we were running the Chinese cafe, serving, you know, you know the Canadian-style Chinese food, chop suey and, you know, things like that. So they never really asked, and they just, they just of course, assumed that we were completely Chinese. Uh, and uh. my mother was, you know, when she was alive, she was kind of behind the scenes, and uh, she had black hair, she had pale skin, and people probably just thought she, she was Chinese. Right. Interesting. Um, and and. You know, growing up with some that kind of secret or that that piece of yourself that you you had to hide. Um, how did that live in your body? Were you afraid? Were you you know sort of coming from a place? Or what if somebody finds out? And then what? Well, I I don't think I was really afraid until later in my life. Um, mm-hmm. But mostly, what I felt was shame, internalized shame, because I thought, yeah. what's wrong? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my mom? Why can't I say this? And I'm not old enough to know what questions to ask her or, you know, we were brought up not to question your parents. So, and she didn't explain. But of course, you know, she was an Indian residential school student. So that's where she would have learned that she should deny who she was and that she should be ashamed of who she was. And so her strategy, I think, was to say, okay, I'm going to protect my children from that. I'm going, to, I'm going to have them hide their identity. They won't get taken to Indian residential school because I'm marrying someone who's not an Indian, so therefore I, my status as an Indian is being taken away from me. But I think mm. for her generation, that was a good thing. Then the government couldn't come in and take us to residential school. The government couldn't come in and try and scoop us or do anything like that because we weren't on the reserve. And do you think that hiding that part of yourself was... Uh, successful, I guess, in lessening the discrimination that you had already f- were facing? It, it was successful. Or was it just different? <laughs> yeah, it was successful to, to uh, a large extent. Um, you know, throughout my high school, nobody knew that I also had, you know, that I had a queen mother. Uh, that didn't come out until later. But of course, you know, as I get older, I start to question and wonder. And it left, of course, within me this weakness and this void due to the shame. And so in in 1981, when I got my doctorate, I thought, okay, I now have the highest earned academic degree. Now I can go back 
and I can go back to the reserve and I can find out who I am because nobody can look mm-hmm. down on me anymore because I'm Dr. Lillian Eva Quandick. And did you do that? I did. So in 1981, I went back and I met with my Uncle Hilliard and his family. And my first question was, what did my mom look like? Mm. And (laughs) I'm feeling emotional here. He said, she looked like you. She looked like you. And that was so touching. There was no, no reinforcement of her in our life. Boy, I am surprised at the emotion that comes up. <laughs> and that just shows you the, the strength of the mother-daughter bond, or even in the mother-son, how important matriarchs and mothers are to our well-being as mm-hmm. human beings, and especially as children. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that moment with us, Lillian. It must be very emotional to to go back to that place. How did that side of the family react to you coming home in many ways? Well, I think they were were very happy. And my Uncle Hilliard, um, this is 1981, so he's probably in his his early 60s. And he said that, you know, they had lost track of us and they were wondering where we were and how we were doing. And he broke down and he cried. Mm. And my my cousin said to me, "That's the first time they ever saw him cry. It was was that time. So it shows you, I guess, uh, you know, the emotional impact of of oppression and racism, where the family gets broken up, and you lose contact with your your siblings, and it leaves that lifetime." scar, at least that lifetime Mm. wound that's, even though as an adult, it still can bubble up and catch you by surprise. Like, I'm I'm almost 80. I'll be 78 in two days. And it catches me by surprise that, you know, my mother died in 1956. And and to me, it, it gave me a lot of strength. That in my worst times of my life, when I when I thought I was ready to give up, it was almost like I could I could feel her spirit, you know, sort of coming to me to give me strength. And I can remember saying, because I faced a lot of discrimination as a woman scientist, and I can remember saying to myself, if my mother could do what she did in her lifetime under the circumstances that she had to live under, well, then I would be damned if I was going to let some man push me out of my job. Mm-hmm. So, mm, so, preach. Sister. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And sort of like I thought, from that moment on, I have never felt weak. And it was my mother coming to me. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We'll be back a little later with my guest, the Honorable Dr. Lillian Dick. Her extraordinary life is the inspiration for a new movie. Cafe Daughter is a coming-of-age story about a Chinese Cree girl who, after a family tragedy, embraces her Cree identity. Are you one of us or one of them? What do you mean? Are you of Asian persuasion or from the Indian nation? 
My mother was an Indian. That's okay. My mother's an Indian, too. The film is an adaptation of a play of the same name by Cree playwright Kenneth T. Williams. Ken says it was a fateful encounter with the former senator that sparked his creative flame. Cafe Daughter took almost a decade to write before it was performed in theaters across the country. He also likes to quote, thank what he calls two racist pieces of Canadian legislation for helping him write the play. The Indian Act and the Chinese Immigration Act. Both had an undeniable impact on Lillian's life. Lillian, she's a warrior. <laughs> very strong, but also she's a very quiet warrior. She's incredibly smart, connected to community, and also, you know, someone who fights for others. You know, she has fought for others. She's absolutely awe-inspiring. The reason why I wrote the play is because when I met her, she's an amazing person, and I knew that this was a story that had to be told. It was 1998, I was working for what was then called the National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation, which is now INSPIRE. While I was still working there, I was sort of tasked with, because I'm from Saskatchewan originally, to find people from Saskatchewan to be nominated. And so I called around to my cousins. I did what, you know, what, what every Indian does, phone your cousins. And uh, it was actually one of my cousins who said, hey, you gotta, you gotta nominate Lillian. I get in contact with Lillian uh, and I'm doing this interview. And I'm just curious, like, how did your parents meet? You know, her mother's Cree from the reserve, her father's Chinese. And this was the line that got me. This was the line that did it. She goes, well, back then it was illegal for Chinese men to hire white women for their businesses. A lot of Native women worked for Chinese men. And I couldn't believe what I had just heard. Right. I said, I, and I, it's not that I thought she was lying. I just had to hear it again. So I asked her, like, what was that about the law? And she explained this whole thing about the law, you know, for the protection of white women and the in, in employment. <laughs> and I was like, holy cow. Um, so that was 1998. And then um, a couple of years later, I meet a Chinese Canadian filmmaker, Keith Locke. Keith has, you know, extensive knowledge about the Chinese Canadian experience. He's a, you know, acclaimed filmmaker himself. And I asked him, have you ever heard about this law? And he went, no. <laughs> and I went, well, if you don't know about it, and I definitely just only know about it, and I know no one else says, I think we have a story here. And that led to us you know, establishing this relationship with Lillian as we asked her permission to go, can we look into this? We think this would make an amazing film. She graciously said yes. As we kept going with it, and this is like years and years and years, Guandoc Theater up in Whitehorse put out a, a request for proposals and I saw it and I went, you know what? I'm going to take all this material I have, all this research I've done, turn it into a play. My name's Yvette Wong. My parents own the cafe in town here. I like reading and I want to be a doctor. What's, what's funny about it is that the play, I had to manipulate certain things. A, a real person's life doesn't, they don't live their life dramatically, so to speak, like a dramatic structure where it's rising tension and everything else. If we did that, we'd go crazy. Like we couldn't, we couldn't handle that. <laughs> so I had to manufacture and condense a lot of things, right? So as I was going through the, the magnitude of her life, like the key things had to be that statement from her mother. I wave back. Turn around, baby. Turn around and never look at them again. Why, mama? You're not one of them. Understand me? You're not an Indian. You never like that had to be key to what was keeping little, you know, Yvette, who's the character I made up, you know, in, in relation to her. 
that's what she's working against. I had to keep the sense that she was a very accomplished and scholarly little girl, right? And, and, and young woman. And also had to sort of anchor down what is it I really wanted her to be. And the other thing too, the big thing that I really had to do was I had to make her want to be a doctor, a medical doctor. Now, Lillian's a doctor of neuroscience. She's not a medical doctor, right? Because one of the things I was thinking, well, how do I make it so that I have a little 10-year-old girl go, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor of neuroscience. Well, that's you know, that doesn't anchor to anything. So when I made it that she wants to be a medical doctor, then it ties into wanting to heal her mother and what that meant. Because her mother, in reality, died of something that was very preventable and easy to treat. And it was because of lack of access to health care that, that that's the reason why, you know, sadly, her mother passed away so young. What do you want to be when you grow up? Asked Auntie Doris. A doctor. My auntie and Cookham laugh. <gasps> a doctor? Who is putting those ideas in her head? They ask. She can be a doctor if she wants, says my mom. You know, her, her brother had a lot of stories that, you know, I had to reject unfortunately because i had to like where am i going to center this how do i you know there's so much you got to find what i said when i was making into play i had to find the spine of the story but once i found the spine which was that yeah it's about her mother it's about wanting to be a doctor once i found those things to put it around and you know contain it then i had to structure it within that so i reversed some things um she actually had a lot of support in high school from teachers and and so on right um and then her father uh, sadly died when she was 17. But in the play, I have her actually confront her father and confront what he wants for her as, as opposed to what she wants. I had to also, you know, give her things to work against. And so Maggie Wolf comes in as a complete... Maggie Wolf is one of my favorite characters I've ever created because she comes in as a force of life and, you know, has a different attitude about herself. And she makes young Yvette, like, see herself for me dramatically things have to have a cost throughout the play right so that you 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 really hang on to what the character wants and needs and you really want to root for them because if they just get everything they want right away then there's nothing to it so yeah i have to give her problems <laughs> so some of the things are problems from her life some of the things are problems that i made up right and then, then i move them along move them around a bit so that they were structured so that you could you follow the story along essentially you know i had to fudge the facts a little bit to tell the truth, you know, dramatically. I have a secret. I'm an Indian. I promise not to tell anyone, ever. The I have a secret uh, actually comes from Lillian herself. So the source of that is Lillian. And for me, that was kind of like one of the hooks in the play. Like, what is it about her? Why is she keeping the secret? And what's the cost of keeping that secret? So she says it, you know, several times, like when, when the idea of her identity becomes challenged, you know, it's like, shh, I got a secret. I have to hold this thing in. And like the whole play is her holding onto the secret and how hard it is for her to do it and what is actually costing her to do it. What it is to keep hanging on to something that maybe we shouldn't, we should, you know, we should try and let go of. The moment she lets it go, it's sad because it means letting go of her mom, but then it's also she gets that weight lifted off. She can now be who she really is. So she actually has to finally disobey her mother and disobey her father to find out who she really is and to be who she really is. Probably the most nervous I was was on the, the world premiere of the play up in Whitehorse. And she's sitting right next to me. She hasn't seen the script. 
not seeing the script at that moment and the play happened and i was just like absolutely like i didn't care how anybody else reacted <laughs> i just had to you know and she she adored it she loved it throughout the whole process though lillian was involved we went and visited her several times it actually motivated me to move back to saskatoon because i was living in ontario it showed me a, a part of my own past i didn't know about you think you know lots about the history you think you have a an understanding and then you find out a story like this right? you find out these little stories then you go what does that mean for me it i learned a lot after visiting with lillian several times right and she was always very gracious about it one of those moments was when i brought keith out with me i, I hadn't moved yet but we for our research keith and i went out to to the, my reserve and went around saskatoon and they did like found history and they looked through stuff like that but there's a hill outside of the town called Punichai. Punichai is right next to my reserve, which is Gordon's. And it's called Monument Hill. And they used to have the, the, the war memorial monument on the top of it. And so as an act of, you know, whatever, I, every time I go there, I try and climb the hill. Just it's something to do, just to remind myself. But I went up there this time and it's like November, it's minus 30. <laughs> it's cold and I'm just like, and I'm realizing that I'm as I'm standing up on Monument Hill that I said, this is like, I'm looking around and it's like one of the high points. I mean, this is where I come from, right? You just that sense that it's hard to, you know, those words don't mean anything until you actually know what they feel like, right? And that's that to me said, I got to come back. That was the moment I got to come back. Being back where you know you come from rejuvenates you. Kenneth D. Williams is a Cree playwright and a member of George Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan. His play, Cafe Daughter, was inspired by the life of former Senator Lillian Dick. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We're back with my special guest, the Honorable Dr. Lillian Dick. Inspiration in life and art. Now, Lillian, Ken calls you a warrior, a gentle warrior. What was your reaction when when he first approached you and said he wanted to write a play about your life? Well, it seemed to me to be kind of a pipe dream. And mm. I just thought, well, this is really odd. And just, I guess I didn't really think about it, thinking that it would ac actually ever come to fruition. They were just doing the interview, and I thought, oh, well, they'll start, and, you know, probably it'll never happen. And, of course, it did. And then as a, I don't know if you would call it a side street or a fork in the road, perhaps a spoon, I don't know. <laughs> One day, the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, Paul Martin, then asked you to join the Senate. Yes. Can you describe that moment for us? It was towards the end of March in 2005. At the time, I was the Associate Dean of Grad Studies at the University of Saskatchewan, and I was at a meeting. It was not, you know, like a real high-level, important meeting. And this phone call came from the prime minister, and the secretary said, I'm sorry, she's busy. <laughs> 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 so I get back from this meeting, and I go sit at my desk, and there's this little sticky note on the computer screen that says, call the prime minister. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> a what? what? And, and I sort of thought it must be... An April Fool's joke? I don't know. And I thought, well, why on the earth would the prime minister want to talk to me? And so then I call and I get uh, his assistant, and he explained to me that Paul Martin was recommending me to be appointed as a senator and that I needed to accept the offer immediately. 
So I just said, well, I can't accept the offer immediately. I don't know anything about the Senate. I don't know what a senator does. <laughs> Dear. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Can you send me the job description, please? Ex- you know, you're, you're spot on. That's exactly what I've said. What does a senator do? Where can I find out what my duties and responsibilities are? That's how well-trained I am. What are my, going to be my duties and responsibilities? And he says, well, look it up on the web. Okay, so I go look it up on the web, and of course there's nothing, nothing really. And then he says, I'll give you until tomorrow to decide. Uh, You can't tell anybody, because if you do, the offer offer will be rescinded. So I said, okay, I promise I won't tell anybody. I'll just talk to Teddy. And Teddy was my dog, so I knew he wouldn't tell anybody. (laughs) 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 So I get home, and I think, you know, I look it up, I can't find anything. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity. I have really no idea what it can lead to. I'm kind of getting at the age in my career where it's hard to keep up and maybe time to to, to move on. I thought, you know, I think it's important to have an Indigenous woman in the Senate. I don't know why, but I think it's important to have that representation. And I thought, well, if I say no, there's no guarantee he's going to ask another Indigenous woman. So I thought, Mm -hmm. what have I got to lose? And I said, okay, if I don't like it, I can always quit. So I said, yes, I accept. (laughs) That's a great mindset to go into a new uh, job with. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't like it, you can just quit. (laughs) That's right. Who needs this? Um, But you did find a role and a responsibility and, uh, you know, a space there. And uh, you really pushed for something that was was really important. What was that? Being an Indigenous woman, my mixed race, at my very first speech in the Senate, I talk about who I am. I talk about being a member of Gordon First Nations, about my mom and my dad, and about loss of Indian status and identity, and the inequality that Indigenous women have. But also, the year before I'm appointed to the Senate, here in Saskatchewan, there was a five-year-old Aboriginal girl by the name of Tamara Keepness who went missing. And there was a number of us in Saskatoon, probably 40 or 50 women got together and formed a group called Ishkwewaki Ewichi Widowchik to work on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I knew that was going to be a priority area for me in the Senate. It just hits your heart and you know it's wrong and you know something has to be done. So from the very beginning, that was one of my priorities to work on that, to push for a national inquiry. And then Mm -hmm. later on, I I got this idea uh, that the laws should change to specifically recognize that women and Indigenous women in particular were targeted for violence and that the laws should be amended so that it's considered an aggravating factor when Indigenous women are targets of violence. You know, by miracle and with a lot of good help, especially from my assistant, Shaley Patel, and thanks to uh, the help in the end of the former Justice Minister, David Lametti, I was able to make those changes to the criminal code in 2019, just before I retired. Mm. That's wonderful yeah. and so important. Yeah. But for those who, who uh, may be listening on the other side of the medicine line who maybe you're not aware of this uh, national tragedy, this embarrassment, could you tell us why and what the situation is here in terms of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? When we started out, 
we knew there was a problem, and it goes back to a report by Amnesty International that Bev Jacobs authored, and when she was president of the Native Women's Association, pushed that forward as well. But it was always being denied by the public and by the RCMP and by various ministers of justice. They kept saying, no, 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 there is no problem. Indigenous women are not being targeted until finally the RCMP themselves came up with the statistics and proved that they were wrong. There was a problem that Indigenous women and girls are at least six times more likely to go missing or be murdered than non-Indigenous women. So there is this sort of horrific violence that is directed more against Indigenous women. And violence against women, unfortunately, is, is the leading cause of death of all women in the world. So it's, it's hugely important. Indigenous women are targeted, and yet we have a government that's not willing to do much about it, so you have to keep pushing. And like this took, you know, over a decade to finally get the National Inquiry. And then the mm-hmm. report came out, I think, in 2019. It's very discouraging that we always have to keep pushing and reminding people. And then we have that situation in Winnipeg with the women who are likely yes. buried in the landfill. And yes. the, the premier of Manitoba is just saying, no, they're not going to dig this up. It's just like mind-boggling. Yes, it is mind-boggling. Um, and, you know, as you said, we, we, we have had the inquiry. We've had the calls uh, to justice out of that report. Um, you have pushed for change in, in legislation and had that change made. What do you think needs to further happen to to truly make that change? We really have to go back to the recommendations in the report, the National Inquiry, and pick out a section of the calls to justice. So, for example, I was at a, a a conference last summer, and we had the assistant crown prosecutor and someone from the um, Saskatoon police and other people on the stage. And so, so that was our opportunity, and people, unfortunately, didn't necessarily see it. So I said to the person who worked for the chief of police, have you implemented recommendation, and I don't remember the exact title, and let's say recommendation 5.119, whereby you will do this, 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 and that. Have you done that? And they said no. And I would say to the Crown Prosecutor, recommendations such, you know, 5.2.16 says you should do this. Have you done that? And he would say no. So I think you really need to go back to the report, pick out specific calls to justice where there's an official identified, and just start hammering at that official Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and never let up. And that's how we got the inquiry. We just kept hammering, hammering, asking questions, demanding, hammering. The families are out there. In my mind, we still need to have that same constant pressure, but focused on the recommendations, the calls for justice from the National Inquiry Report. Oh, boy. (laughs) Canada. Canada. Well, doesn't it derive from Aguanyagawa? It's village. As Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Ganyetio. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. My mother, Catherine Horseknife, was a Cree Indian. And my father... Charlie Wong is a Chinese immigrant. I am proud to be their daughter. 
You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guest today, the Honorable Dr. Lillian Dick. It has been a journey, and I love all my relations, and I'm here to serve them. That's another clip of Cafe Daughter, a new film directed by Shelley Nero. It's a story Shelley was immediately drawn to, because part of it mirrored her own experiences. The same thing happened to Keith Locke, though the two filmmakers come from different backgrounds. Shelley is Mohawk from Six Nations of the Grand River. Keith Locke is Chinese-Canadian. He's been involved with Cafe Daughter since its early development as a play, I spoke with Shelley and Keith just before the film's debut. Here's what Shelley had to say about why she wanted to direct the film. When Keith and Ken came to my house, I was really honored to be asked. And I was really drawn to the uh, project because of Lillian Dick's story. Mm-hmm. And I just found her incredibly strong. And uh, I talked to Lillian a couple months after meeting with Ken and Keith. And she was really friendly, formidable. She had so much information and, um, you know, she's just very giving. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought I have to try to do as best I can with this project. Are there parts of uh, Cafe Daughter as a play that that you connected with and felt familiarity with? Well, you know, uh, Lillian is a genius and (laughs) she's, you know, like brilliant. So I can't say I took that on. But it's still about a story about a young girl going through the world, trying to make her mark and having all these people sort of telling her you can't do that because you're a girl and because you're a visible minority. I just had the feeling that she really had to live with that, but she just kept pushing her way through. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of people do that. You really got to struggle. You really got to fight your way through a lot of those uh, barriers that you meet along the way. Mm. And Keith, what about you? What what about Lillian's story drew you in? Well, it, it was so interesting because she's half Indigenous and half Chinese-Canadian. Her story also felt a lot like my own family's story. Like it, there were really common elements. Mm. How did it remind you of your own family? Lillian, she had to tell everyone that she w- denied her Indigenous half. And she told everyone that uh, she was Chinese. This is what her mother insisted. Because she was Chinese in the school, they put her in the slow learners class. And she won the Provincial Academic Achievement Award. So it's very similar to my my family. Uh, my mother, she's Australian Chinese. The family settled first in Tasmania. And there was a one-room schoolhouse. And my, my great-aunt, was in that school, and they had a new teacher, and she was the only Chinese person in the school. And when the other students were bad, to punish them, the teacher would make them sit beside my aunt. But the joke was on the teacher, because what she didn't realize is that Aunt Rose was really popular, and the kids wanted to sit beside her. (laughs) That's brilliant. How do you feel like your own lived experiences help you bring this story to light? Hmm. Well, I don't have a Chinese restaurant uh, story or anything, but I could relate to it in the fact that, you know, she had to participate in with her family business after school. 
when I came home from school, like we had to sit down and make Indian craft for sale. And it's like, there was no question about it. There were no arguments. Like it just happened that way. So I kind of relate it to that story that way as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to like pick up our boots or whatever and, and just get to work. And Keith, what about for you? Just the racism that, that Lillian faced and is part of the story. When I grew up, it was very similar. I could relate to it. Or there was bullying. And that's why I find the story quite moving, very moving. You know, things that happen in the film and in the play, their dynamics, I totally relate. And I found it very moving to see it, yeah. to see it in the screen or on the stage. Why do you feel that Lillian's story in particular needs to be told and shared with Canadians or, or you know, whoever watches the film? She went to the top and just stayed there. And I think with Canadian history, the way it is, like we don't hear about the stories like Lillian. She's just a, a great uh, example, a great leader. People can look up to her and say, well, she's a great example of success. Mm. This film also sheds light on some little known history in Canada in terms of Chinese people and how they were treated. Can you share some of, a little bit of that of that history that people don't know in terms of who they were allowed to hire and so on. A lot of people don't know this, and but the Chinese were they had a lot of restrict restrictions, and uh, one of them was that they couldn't hire white women to work in their businesses, but an indigenous woman was okay, and that was the case in Saskatchewan, where this was the era of the bachelor society, so there were many many more men than women Chinese. Uh, Canadian men than Chinese Canadian women in Canada. For instance, in um, 1940 in Ontario, it was 36 Chinese Canadian men to one Chinese Canadian woman. There were couples that would come together, Indigenous and Chinese, helping Ken write the, the play. I didn't realize that there was a demographic that's of half Chinese, half Indigenous, most of them deny their other half, so they because they can pass both ways. So if they want to be just Indigenous, they can be just Indigenous. If they want to be just Chinese, they can be just Chinese. And I started thinking about my own family, and we had an aunt who we knew she was half Chinese, but we didn't know what the other half was. And she would always take time and visit her family in Montreal. Uh, she always brought back moose meat, and she always had moose meat in the freezer. And and Ken, when I was working with Ken, he just said, oh, Keith, moose meat in the freezer is a kind of a dead giveaway. <laughs> and, yeah, so she was very tall and beautiful, and she sent away to Hong Kong for a chong sam, which is a traditional Chinese woman's dress, and they sent the order back and said there must be a mistake because you know they couldn't picture a Chinese woman woman being so tall and you know having those measurements but she never admitted she never said we we never knew that mm. other half of her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what was the experience like for you bringing this adaptation to the screen what did you learn or unlearn about Canada during that process um, well, I knew I always knew Canada was kind of this uh, racist uh, corporation that was set up so that certain groups of people would thrive and other groups would not thrive. 
So I, I knew that, knew about that. Making it into a film really gave me an opportunity to look at it a little bit closer. Like uh, Keith was saying, like when the men came here, they would have to leave their families behind. And so it really set up this scenario of loneliness. And um, I thought about that a lot, living especially out in the prairies, you know. Mm-hmm. You're pretty well on your own except for the the group that you could um, pull together. And so I I emphasize that a little bit in the film. And it also gave me an opportunity to show the racism that Canada has inflicted on its Indigenous population, the Chinese population too, I suppose. It encouraged me just to uh, look at that a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes the story of Cafe Daughter um, so special and unique in, in a film that no, that you're, that's not going to be seen anywhere else? Well, in this film, it's um, about a Chinese father and a Cree mother. And, and it's really about the family. The family have to get together and they really form themselves as this strong, loving family. And the mother who tells her daughter, you know, don't let anybody know you're Indian because if they if they know, they're going to be horrible to you. Mm. Just saying that, you know, knowing the uh, the facts behind her telling her daughter that it's such a, a sad condition in which they all had to live. Mm. That's very true. However bad it was for the Chinese, I, it was much worse for the Indigenous. I remember when I was in my 20s, I mean, I was experiencing a lot of racism. I had long hair. I was at that time in my life. And I used to hitchhike. So I was hitchhiking. And in those days, a lot of people hitchhike. And there's another guy hitchhiking, an Indigenous guy. He came over to talk to me. And he asked me, are you Indigenous? And I said, no, I'm Chinese. And he said to me, a lot of people think I'm Chinese. And I let them because my life is so much easier. And I think that's shown in the film. I mean, that's part of Lillian's story. When I heard that, it was just like an eye opener. It surprised me and I realized something, how it's worse for Indigenous people. Mm. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's important to continue to challenge these kinds of stereotypes and uh, correct the history or write the history in some cases that are, um, you know, so ingrained within within Canadian society? But I think it's important to keep these stories going. Like we're just starting to uh, portray these stories, I think, because, um, you know, a lot of it has been sort of pushed away. Don't talk about that. Canada has, is set up to be this country where they're accepting immigrants and encouraging immigrants to come here. But the history of Canada is not so accepting. But from my understanding is that people don't want to hear about it or talk about it. And I think that right now it's so important to do that, to Mm -hmm. talk about stuff like that we don't want to hear about. Yeah. Keith? This history is not known. It's not known. uh, It's not taught in schools. And it's just... I think Cafe Daughter is telling a story that's never been told before. Very many films and stories are told of how this so-called racialized group relates to the central culture. But very rarely, almost never, do they show how racialized groups relate to each other. And I think that's that's very important. 
it's very unique in Cafe Daughter that it's telling this story. It's a unique story, but it's a story that that includes everyone in its meaning, meaningfulness. It's a story everyone can relate to, I think. And what do you uh, hope that people will take away, walk out of the theater with after seeing this film? I really want people to feel the love in their heart. And when they finish the story, that they're going to say, that was an amazing film. And it's all about family. And I think, especially with Indigenous families, I think because of residential schools and everything else that has happened, that, you know, we question love. And I think it's something that we have to really start looking at and accepting in ourselves. Now I sound like a Baptist minister. (laughs) (laughs) Can I get an amen? (laughs) We got love, man. (laughs) I really love the story. I love the uh, characters. I love the actors who portrayed the the characters. And you could feel that they really liked the story itself and the people that they were portraying. And Keith, what about you? Yes, um, and I love I love the ending. It makes it worth watching in a way. I'm hoping that people will see the humanity in in the indigenous characters and also the Chinese Canadian characters. There's a lot of things that people aren't aware of, and I think this film brings out just the depth of characters and the love. Keith, Shelley, thank you so much for your time today. and Thank you, Roseanne. And for making Roseanne. this movie. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I can't wait for you to see it either. <laughs> Shelley Nero is a Mohawk filmmaker, artist, and the director of Cafe Daughter. She's a member of Six Nations of the Grand River. Born in Toronto, Keith Locke has been making experimental documentary and dramatic films since 1969 and is considered one of Canada's first Chinese-Canadian filmmakers. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. We've been speaking with the Honorable Dr. Lillian Dick, the subject of a feature film inspired by her incredible life. As Cafe Daughter goes out into the world, I asked Lillian what message she hopes audiences will take from seeing her story on the silver screen. It doesn't really matter who you are. You, you can succeed, and there can be what seem like insurmountable barriers, but there's nothing wrong with you. And I think I was able to get a really good education. There was a, there was a lot of struggle. There were a lot of sacrifices, but I made it. And I think, you know, when you see somebody that's made it, that's kind of like you, it gives you hope. And I can remember the first time I saw a, an Aboriginal band. It was Cashton. <laughs> Cashton, oh, classic. <laughs> I was just blown away. And I thought, that's what it's all about. That, that's what a role model is. Like, those guys were so fantastic. Like, if I had any musical talent or aspirations, I would think I could do it. But, of course, I can't sing or, or any of those kinds of things. But I thought that's what it's all about, is seeing someone that you can relate to and think, yeah, I can do that. You know, if she can be a neuroscientist, so can I. If mm. she can be a senator, so can I. In fact, mm. I actually have had quite a few young people say to me, how do I become a senator? And I just laugh and I think, you know, this is wonderful that they're thinking so far ahead. And I just say, I don't know, because, you know, it wasn't in my plans. 
<laughs> Just tell the prime minister you're busy right now and you can't come to the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have overcome so many barriers, um, as we said before, you know, uh, in science and in, in politics in in so many different areas. Uh, and now your story is being shared, you know, in this movie. Um, how do you think you were able to to keep moving forward? Well, it's again, it goes back to my mom, right? Yeah. And reclaiming the culture and, you know, feeling her strength. And I, I was very fortunate that I did meet a couple of really wonderful women elders. And, and in particular, I'd like to mention the late Laura Wasa case. She kind of took me under her wing. And I had gone to a counselor and I recognized that what was making me feel weak was the shame and the, the inability to talk about my mother. And and, mm. and 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 about myself as an Indian woman. And then once I went down that road to, like I said, there's just no turning back. You just feel the power that comes with that. You feel the spiritual power. You feel the emotional power. You just feel so good about yourself, and the pride comes back. So, too, you know, in the film, I'm hoping that young people who see it, it will add to their feeling of self-worth and self-pride and self-confidence. Because all of that helps you succeed at school. It helps you succeed in the workplace. It, it, it helps you to be happier. So that's, that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, that's a beautiful message. Um, and finally, Lynn, knowing how far you've come and, and all the barriers that you've overcome, uh, reclaiming your culture, reclaiming your own story and sharing it with others, what do you think your mom would say to you at this point? She'd just be so proud of me. She would just say, you know, like, I, she would say, like, who would have ever thought it was possible for my daughter to have accomplished what she has done? She would just be stunned. She would just be so, so proud. And I'm absolutely certain that she is so proud of you as as we all are thank you thank you for this time uh, it's been a real honor to to speak with you today thank you rosanna you're welcome the honorable dr lillian dick former canadian senator brilliant scientist advocate and daughter Cafe Daughter, a film inspired by her life, premieres October 13th. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Johnson, Kim Kasher, Laura Bone-Steubing, and me, Rosanna Deerchild. Find us on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved or download our podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. And ask them a bit now. Echo say. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.